Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor of The New Statesman, and you're listening to The New Statesman podcast. Today, I'm joined by Will Dunn, The New Statesman's business editor, and Ellen Pearson Hager, our assistant culture editor, to discuss why the UK's housing crash is just beginning. Today, we're diving into a critical issue that hits close to home for many across the UK, the state of our housing market, and specifically, the dire state of the rental market. Housing in the UK has become increasingly unaffordable during the last two decades. Buying a home is an unattainable prospect for many in the country, and the challenges facing renters are now reaching a tipping point. And we're here together, each of us, because we've been looking at and reporting on different aspects of the housing crisis over the past few weeks and the sort of wider effects that it's having on all of our lives. Um, Will, do you want to tell us a bit about what you've been looking into? Yes, I've I've been mainly looking at the way um, the housing market, um, house prices and rents um, is changing as a result of what's changing in the wider economy, especially the change in the price of debt, because um, almost everybody who buys a house buys it with debt. And um, a lot of people who rent a home are paying off their landlord's debt by doing so. So that's the principal change that underlies all of it is how how expensive is it to borrow and that that's what has this um, this enormous effect on the on the wider economy because it, it cuts into people's disposable incomes as well and ellen when we talk about the housing crisis we often talk about people who can't afford their rent or they can't buy a house but of course when rents go up it means people who run public venues are also in trouble you've been looking into that yeah exactly i've been researching and reporting on how landlordism affects um, our cultural spaces and the arts life in the UK. Um, and even as a journalist who's been reporting for some years now on, on art spaces and the culture industries, I was surprised um, myself to learn just how much of an impact landlordism has um, on, on the viability of, of our cultural spaces. Um, and that arts venues, cinemas, um, music venues don't own buildings um, is a huge problem for for our cultural life in the UK. And it is affecting the state of our towns as well. Even if you aren't directly, if you're lucky enough not to be directly affected by the housing crisis, it will still be having an impact on your neighbourhood. That's something I've been looking at, the number of councils that are at risk of bankruptcy because they are no longer able to supply enough temporary accommodation for people who end up homeless in their areas. That's a statutory duty they have to fulfil, but they just don't have the places to put them in, and that's pushing their budgets to breaking point and, you know, really pulling at the fabric of some towns around the country. 
Um, but let's get an, an update on the actual state of the housing market at the moment, Will. Everyone's sort of saying that house prices are going down, but that's not quite true, is it? Well, uh, so there's been a couple of, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's always possible to find um, two headlines about house prices that will directly contradict each other. And that's because there are two different, very distinct ways of looking at the economy. So, um, you know, if you've been on BBC News website this month, you would have seen um, headlines saying house prices rise for the first time in six months uh, and house prices see biggest monthly rise for more than a year. And that sounds like, oh, you know, back in business for house prices. But um, equally, last week you would have seen uh, a headline, um, I'm not sure if BBC reported it, but uh, saying um, the uh, prices have undergone their first annual fall since uh, 2012. And that's that's the more realistic picture. So prices do normally um, rise in the autumn. Um, people have a look at houses over the summer and then kind of complete in the autumn. October is normally um, the biggest month. Um, but this October has been the weakest month, uh, the weakest October since 2008. And, and even that is, you know, that that little um, dip in house prices of sort of 2 to 3%, depending on where you measure from, that's a nominal change. And that's the really important thing, is that's happening in a year of very high inflation. Um, so from March 2022 to September of this year, in real terms, house prices fell by well over 13%. Uh, Savills, the estate agents, have said that average real house prices by October weren't any higher than they were at the end of about 2015. So the housing crash is still going on, and it will continue to go on for some time. Um, because So next year, about another 1.6 million households will come to the end of their fixed-rate mortgages. And um, the mortgages are are much more expensive than they are they were when those people took them out. So if they're two year fixed rates or five year fixed rates, those will all be more expensive. But some of them buy really quite a lot um, because um, despite the uh, adults being back in the room uh, in the economy since the trust episode, that hasn't stabilized um, government bond prices all that much, which are the main sort of um, one of the main references by which mortgages are priced. Um, so there, there'll be a lot of people paying um, a fair bit more every month. And the, the main underlying um, point about house prices is just the thing that inflated them has stopped. So, you know, the, after the financial um, crisis in 2008, the Bank of England started doing quantitative easing, which I won't go into an enormously long explanation of, but it inflates assets. So it inflates share prices, it inflates things that are already owned, and particularly inflated um, house prices by by a lot. And uh, governments knew that was happening, but they they even then they, they still stepped in because rather than saying, well, we're doing this one thing on the one hand, which is inflating the... the um, the cost of buying a house, uh, so we'll do something else to address that. The thing they did was to further pump the market with things like help to buy, which was 29 billion quid's worth of um, government-backed loans to to first-time buyers to try and cram more people into the already overheated market. And those things aren't happening anymore. They're not doing help to buy anymore. QE isn't happening anymore. The opposite of QE is happening. Interest rates are higher. Mm. So... Um, there isn't uh, any reason to expect that uh, house prices ha will have, you know, the same kind of upwards momentum um, that they had in the past. Um, even with house builders doing less building, 
um, it's it's unlikely that you'll get the same same stimulus on that on that kind of uh, level. The good news is um, that falling house prices are really good. You know, they're good for everyone. It's not you know like nobody complains about all the price of breads going down or the price, you know it's 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 a kind of inflation that people have been kind of tricked into thinking were, uh, worked as a sort of substitute for. Uh, for for growing wages or for you know not not having the same pensions that people in previous decades had, people were tricked into thinking, well, my house is going up by loads in price, so that will kind of work as a pension, or mm. you know that will make up for the fact that my my real wages haven't really uh, grown. But obviously, then you get to a turning point like this in the economy, and they start to stagnate against inflation or go down, and um, that uh, that kind of Fairy gold uh, turns turns back into leaves again, um, but but the, you know so the 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 um, the illusory growth that was created uh, isn't there anymore. But um, you know if people's wages are given some years to catch up to house prices, then that that will be good because you know obviously making um, it more affordable for first time buyers to buy a house is good, but also um, you know if it's good for for everyone. Uh, because you know the gap between the property you might buy next gets smaller if the if the prices are smaller. The only thing that rising prices do is makes it more expensive to move. Mm. Um, people take out bigger and bigger mortgages. Um, so it's it's kind of um, a long term picture of stagnation or falling market. But that's probably all right for for most people. Um, the real problem is rents um, because the other effect of um, this uh, change in, in the direction of prices, um, as reported recently, is um, the fact that oh, for, de for decades, people have bought um, houses to um, rent out to other people. It's been a, you know, it's government policy and monetary policy have made it a very sound investment because you could get a return from your rent, get somebody paying off your mortgage and the price of your asset, the house would go up. So um, it was kind of a no-brainer, and you don't have to um, pay national insurance contributions as a landlord. So you know it's been been very easy to make uh, money from the the rentier economy. But the maths on that have now changed. So it's now too expensive to um, pay the the rent interest for most um, buy to let um, small buy to let landlords to really get into the market and actually make any money out of it. And that is putting pressure on the supply of rental properties as landlords get out of the market. And that means that rents are forecast to continue rising um, uh, quite a lot. Um, there's a quite a wild divergence of um, forecasts on uh, rents. And personally, I think some of the forecasts that have been made for how high they will get um, are unrealistic because I just don't think the rental market can, can support that much more. You know, you People just won't be able to squeeze renters that much harder, um, and we see this um, in, um, in in London because um, there was a trend from about 2013 um, up till just before the pandemic. Um, people in their 20s um, were gradually moving out of London um, because they they just couldn't afford to live there anymore, and that trend was um, sort of halted by the pandemic to a certain extent because um, it just changed the dynamics of where people were moving anyway. But that trend has resumed. Um, so a recent survey found that nearly half of renters in their 20s who um, moved uh, moved outside the capital um, 
which is a yeah so that's that's a resumption of that trend and that's um one of the um just one way of looking at what um what ellen's um, been reporting on which is the the way in which this particular kind of inflation um affects culture it kind of you know sort of dissolves the the communities that people can build up the cultural institutions they can create the things they can participate in you know london is a city that's culture relies on the influx of young people looking for for jobs either from around the country or, or from abroad if they can't afford to live here it'll be a very different place yeah and it affects the electoral map as well interestingly we've been talking a lot on the sort of uh, political podcast about um the changing politics in places like the home counties and suburbia because you do have these people who you mentioned moving out of expensive cities and taking their political values with them to areas that otherwise you know hadn't been populated by these groups so it does have a big societal impact i mean ellen what was what's been the parallel impact for people who are struggling to pay the rent on um i think you looked into music venues pubs cinemas everything that we can expect on a on a high street to make our lives culturally rich yeah well i think i think kind of stepping back a bit most shocking to me was even to think about the fact that when you have a venue say a popular cinema chain take Curzon, you know, big Curzon cinema in, in Mayfair in London um, that's been there a really long time. You think about it as, as, as Curzon, it's the cinema, that's mm-hmm. the building. Actually, Curzon, the brand, doesn't own that building. They're subject to a landlord. Um, and it's not so much, in the cases that I was seeing, it's not so much that these venues couldn't pay the rent, but actually that their landlords were choosing to kick them out or, of the buildings. So the, the case that's ongoing um, with Curzon in Mayfair is that the, the holding company, um, which is based in Jersey, um, 38 Curzon lease, plans to end Curzon's lease in order to renovate the building. Curzon um, have told me that the cinema wouldn't otherwise close. It's financially viable. Um, it's obviously got a great spot in the centre of London's West End, and it's particularly popular for events and premieres. But the landlord intends to renovate the building to open its own cinema on the site, pushing out a brand that's been there um, for 90 years because they think that there's a better way to profit from the building. So it's not, I mean, obviously it would be, would be awful if, if these places couldn't afford to pay the rent as it is, but it's not even that. It's even worse. It's that they're not being able to continue to put on performances or the showings or, or to have the community space um, they have had until now. And it's and it's happening all over all over the arts. So there's the Curzon example. It's also happening a lot um, with music venues. And I came across this idea really through the work that the Music Venue Trust is doing. Um, they're an organisation um, that supports um, small grassroots music venues, um, which they define as yeah small to medium sized venues that focus on showcasing new music. So this is not your O2 Academies. <laughs> Um, it's, it's, you know, small community spaces, maybe just with 100 capacity, but they're really important for, for keeping regional music alive, particularly outside of, of cities. Um, and also for getting bands on the touring circuit. The classic thing is that, you know, even artists as big as Ed Sheeran once played grassroots venues. Everyone has to start out somewhere and that's how you, you rise. Um, and um, according to data from the Music Venue Trust, more than 35% of grassroots music venues have closed in the last 20 years, which is a huge amount, you know, more than a third. And really interestingly, 93% of those are tenants. 
and the typical operator has just 18 months left on its tenancy. So the idea is that there are people, you know, business people, music lovers, music fans who have set up a business and they're supporting their local art scene. But with just 18 months on a tenancy, just like as a renter with a few months left on, on your housing tenancy, there's no way to plan for the future. And um, obviously the pandemic made the live events space even more difficult. And, you know, in my reporting, speaking with various venue owners, I know that the effects of that are still being felt as of course, the effects of, of the cost of living crisis, people feel they just don't have the disposable income to buy big tickets, cinema tickets, theater tickets, whatever it might be. And um, so there's, there's a number of problems, but, but the very fact, I think that these cultural spaces can't feel secure in their building um, and know that they'll be there in, in a couple of years time means that there's lots of things they just can't do. And, and also is, again, it's a bit like being um, a private renter in terms of housing and that, you know, they wouldn't just be able to renovate the building, maybe put a new bar in, knock a wall down, open a space to do something else with it. Business owners are very limited, just like a renter is any of us who, who rent our flats and couldn't just suddenly paint a wall black if we wanted to. So I think, I think we have to be really careful when we're thinking about the particular situation that these owners are in. Um, and, and as I say, you know, it goes from a small music venue um, to, to a brand like Curzon, which you assume is secure, but it's just not the case because of the way that the, the ownership rights are around, around these buildings. I think that's a really good example of just sort of how corrosive um, it is to concentrate on sort of non-productive assets in your economy. You know, just, you know, the, those businesses that Ellen's talking about, even a very small um know sort of community art center like those are productive businesses that are then you know um, helping other businesses like you know acts or um you know sort of musicians to to create stuff that they're going to sell to other people that's you know that's productive economic activity uh and some of that um ed sheeran um whatever you think of his music i'm not going to share my views <laughs> to a podcast um <laughs> is a major export you know that yeah. you know and britain does very well out of its cultural exports um it's extremely important to our economy and if if you have other businesses that are just kind of shunting that aside in order to um concentrate on the returns from the the non-productive asset you know they're not um necessarily creating more jobs or more products to sell into the, into the economy from the inflation of the cost of that property that they own then um, you're, you're doing some economic damage like right across the economy. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
Yeah, and a good example of that is some of the places that I've been looking at that have been suffering a sort of perfect storm of all of these different factors that we're talking about, from rents being too expensive to houses being out of reach to, you know, a scarcity in housing stock. And I think the place where this is most extreme in the country at the moment is in Hastings, which is uh, on the Sussex coast. Um, it's a poor town, but it's close to London, which is, you know, quite a toxic combination for an area. It also happens to be beautiful as well, which makes things you know, sometimes good for the tourism sector there, but very difficult in terms of the gentrification trend, which has meant lots of Londoners have moved down, particularly during the pandemic. Um, on London salaries, been able to buy up quite what was quite cheap housing, which has then become out of reach to locals. So the typical, let's just take Hastings as an example, the typical rent for a one bed flat there is now £805 a month, which is, which is huge in a town where the median full time salary is 25500 um, and this is the area where rents have um, risen 11.7%. That's more than double the average rise. That was over 2022 to 23. Um, and house prices have also doubled there in 10 years, which is one of the biggest spikes that we've seen anywhere in England. Um, and the impact that this has on locals is that they can't afford to rent or to buy in the place that they've grown up in and that they work in, often in quite low paid service sector jobs. So they become homeless. And I think there's a misunderstanding slightly in the public perception of what homelessness means. Most homeless people are not living on the streets, you know, rough sleeping, as the phrase goes. They are stuck having to be in temporary accommodation, you know, inappropriate housing for their needs, often sometimes bed and breakfasts and sort of bed sits. This is called temporary accommodation and it's down to your council to provide that, that room for you. But the problem is because there's nowhere to put people because there's been so few houses built, you know, this isn't unique to Hastings, but there's there's been far too few houses built there over the past few decades. It's it's costing Hastings, which is having to use all sorts of different places like hotels and things, 5.6 million this year on temporary accommodation, which is half its entire council's budget. And so that doesn't just affect, you know, the people who are waiting to find housing. It also affects everyone who uses council services in Hastings. It affects the roads and the libraries and uh, social care and everything else that councils, the bins, have, have, to, have to spend their money on. So, you know, Ellen's talked very vividly about the effect that this can have on our cultural life, but it's also our sort of the public realm, the, the way that we interact with our neighbourhoods. It's having an impact on that as well, even if, you know, you're one of those Londoners lucky enough to have bought somewhere cheap in Hastings and have quite a good quality of life. You don't want to see your town degrading that way either. No, and it's it's also um, just to, on, on some of the other reporting um, that you've done uh, on um, councils that have been bankrupted or I know councils can't technically go bankrupt but we'll use that phrase uh, um, or near bankrupted by um, the ways in which they've had to try to make money mm. because um, they were you know the, the, the really long-term picture is that um, when um, uh, councils uh, were told to, to sell off their council housing um, under um, right to buy under Margaret Thatcher at uh, the beginning of the 1980s they're also told by the treasury that they you know they they had to meet certain requirements before they could borrow anything at all to um build more housing and instead they so the councils effectively stopped building house building was taken over by um people um, who were doing it for profit 
Uh, and then um, councils now, as as your reporting from Hastings shows, have to spend all this money on finding accommodation for people that they could have built in previous decades, and they they would now be effectively making return from or or not having to spend um, money on. And instead, they spent it on these mad schemes like shopping centres or gone into business with some quite questionable people who have seen the council coming and thought, ah, I know, I can, you know, I know they're desperate for returns because yes. they've got all these obligations. And I know they can't go bankrupt. So I know the government will always run underwrite it in the end. There's been a number of different examples of councils that I've written about who have, you know, speculated. And actually they, they were encouraged to do this. They were encouraged to make these riskier investments in the coalition years when they were cutting their budgets. They were saying, but you can invest in X, Y and Z. And, and they're not seeing many of those places aren't seeing returns on those investments, which again has a direct impact on people's lives. And I just want to say one more thing about Hastings, actually, which I think is probably the most shocking fact that I found there. The leader of the council had actually called for a Homes for Ukraine style scheme in Hastings. That was the refugee scheme that, that the UK government introduced when Russia invaded Ukraine to take in refugees here into people's houses. But for locals, you know, can you open your spare rooms? Can you give up a space in your garden where you can build a prefab for someone who doesn't have a place to live? I mean, it's quite extraordinary that Britain in the 21st century ha has to make that kind of call. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely shocking. But there are some there are some alternative ways that some people are trying to do things in a very hostile environment. I mean, I spoke to this um, grassroots community landlord in Hastings that were hooking rents to the median income. And I, I spoke to some people who were managing to live affordably there. But, you know, it was on a small scale and it's about how you scale up those kind of schemes. Ellen, you found some similar models that venues were trying to adopt, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, I've looked into a number of different venues and, and programs, and a lot of them are using community ownership as a way to, to raise funds to buy the building from the landlord, um, ensuring that a building stays um, with, with the business and therefore the, the, the business has security um, in the future. It's, it's, a, it's an idea that has been around for, for a long time. And I think one of the ways in which we, one of the areas in which we've seen community ownership be most successful is with our pubs um, in the UK. The Campaign for Real Ale um, reckons that there are about 150 pubs in the UK that community owned. And actually my, my local pub in, in Nunhead in South London um, is one of them. The, the Ivy House um, was closed in 2012 and sold to a property developer um, and they planned to gut the whole building and turn it into flats. And if any of our listeners have been to the Ivy House, you'll know what a shame that would have been because it's an amazing historic building which has the gorgeous 1930s music hall in its centre. It's really, really interesting actually and obviously also hugely important as a social and community space um, for the local area. But a group of regulars applied to English Heritage to get the building grade two listed status and have it categorised as an asset of community value, which protects a building from an immediate sale. And so with that extra time, the group um, fundraised and managed to buy the pub from the owners before it could be sold to the developer. And in 2013, the Ivy House reopened um, as a community-owned, community-run pub. And 10 years later, it's still open um, it's a great community hub. They put on all sorts of different events, reading groups, um, really important social initiatives for the community as well as being um, a live music space. Um, so this kind of model of community ownership is something that is being talked about in more and more sectors. Um, the music venue trust, the 
um, initiative that I mentioned earlier um, have done a similar thing um, with a scheme that they launched last year called Music Venue Properties. And they had a list of grassroots music venues around the UK that they were um, hoping to, to buy back from, from the landlords um, with this community ownership model. Um, so anyone from, you know, a- average music bands to, to big investors, um, such as some of the country's biggest record labels, were able to invest um, in, in this scheme. Um, and the first of those um, sales went through earlier this year. Um, and that's of the Snug, which is um, a grassroots music venue in Atherton, um, in Greater Manchester. Um, it's just 100 capacity. Um, it's one of very few live music spots in the area. Um, and it's used as a coffee shop in the daytime, turns into a gig room at the weekend. But it's a really important community asset, the space. And the building was up for sale. And the, the owner of the Snug didn't own the building. The landlord wanted to sell it. And probably the only thinks to turn it into flats because she's seen lots of local commercial properties bought up and turned into flats in the area. But because of this music venue property scheme, the building has been bought by the so-called friendly landlord of, of the music venue trust. And so long as the snug operates as a music venue, it will be secure in its tenancy, um, which, as I've, as I've said, is, is vital for, for the kind of development that we need um, and the kind of sustainability that we need in, in this sector. And I think it's really important to think of, you know, obviously we've spoken about housing and the impact on, on people's lives. And of course, having a secure home is, is a human right. Um, but also when we're thinking about the kinds of towns and cities that we'd like to live in, we, we all know, you know, a town, a city is a better place if there are music venues, theatres, cinemas, pubs, community spaces, not purely for, for the sake of the arts and the culture and the entertainment that happens there, but just to have spaces where People can come together and share ideas, share stories, be with other people. Um, so I think thinking about landlordism within this cultural space um, is imperative. And I think, I think we need to be having more and more conversations about, about the ways that landlordism affects the arts. Because as I said before, it, it isn't something that I see talked about much. You know, we talk about venues closing because of licensing issues or because of rising energy costs. Um, the, the whole kind of late night alcohol licensing issue is, is a common one. Um, but to be thinking about who really owns our buildings and our premises and the brands that, that we love, um, I think, think is vital. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with you. And there is an irony, isn't there? Because um, you're talking about what kind of towns, cities, neighbourhoods we want to live in. Often, at first, it's in the interest of the landlord or the housing developer to make an area into a sort of desirable location before they build the houses. So I've been writing about this trend called meanwhile space where, you know, perhaps underused high streets and vacant um, units are done up in a nice way and, you know, nice local businesses that otherwise might not have been given a chance to put into these places and they become quite artistic and exciting to people who want to move to perhaps an area that's a bit more affordable but doesn't have much going on there. And these are often backed by housing developers and the people who are, who are going to profit from it. Knocked down and then housing is put in as soon as they've got the interest sort of ramped up in the area. So there's that strange sort of artificial culture that's sometimes pumped in somewhere because of the landlord landlordism that you've just been talking about, Ellen. But there's obviously, you know, there is knowledge among these people of what they need to draw, particularly younger people, to an area. And that's now being exploited as well. 
Um, I remember uh, hearing about a, a London property developer who would, before he um, started doing up a, a block of flats, um, he would um, open a bookshop uh, on the same street because <laughs> everyone wants to live near a bookshop. And then the bookshop wouldn't last all that long after the flats have been sold. <laughs> um, it's incredibly cynical. But it is, yeah. yeah, like you say, it's an irony. But, you know, the fact that somewhere has cultural institutions um, makes people want to live there because there's just more to do, you know, more chances, as Ellen said, to to um, uh, spend time with other people. Um, but then that also, you know, causes um, property prices to inflate, which imperils those institutions because the owners of them then think, well, I could get more out of this if I turned it into yeah. the kind of housing that everyone else is buying. So you do need some sort of mechanism to protect that or you just have this constant cycle of people seeing it solely as a means of making money. And, um, you know, then the, the, the people who have moved to those places then watch them degraded by the the thing that caused them to, to move them. Yeah, I mean, we've been looking into, for a separate piece, Will, into lots of these schemes, these housing schemes, where, which are quite new, where people have been left without the things they were promised. Often they're promised that there would be a pub on the estate or even a GP surgery or a primary school, and these things just don't appear once the builders leave town. It also works the other way. I suppose if, if you know, if younger people, for example, are being pushed out of London because... Um, they can't afford to live here. And I know it's the same with other major cities. It has an impact on ticket sales for for, for live music, comedy, theatre, whatever it is. Of course, older people and other kinds of people go to those events as well. But if we're thinking about that kind of younger market, um, as well as the general cost of living crisis and people not being able to afford um, those tickets, if people aren't living in the major cities, then they cease to become cultural hubs. Yeah, anyway, absolutely. And like you, Ellen, I met someone, um, I met this group. Uh, it was sort of half community land trust, half social enterprise that were buying up old buildings, sort of disused buildings to turn into both workspaces, cultural spaces and flats um, affordable to rent to their um, to their tenants. And I asked the woman who ran it, this place was, this um, organisation is called Hastings Commons and it's sponsored by various groups. You mentioned um uh, I think you mentioned Historic England. I think that was one of their funders, National Lottery and some local funders as well to help them buy the buildings. And she said, you know, we'd love to do it on a grander scale and we'd love it to happen around the country. There are, there are some other examples of this kind of thing happening around the country, but, you know, the policy atmosphere is extremely hostile. And I wonder, Will, what, what kind of thing do you think the government or an incoming government could bring in to try and make, try and make the housing crisis um, sort of less acute for people? Uh, you've seen actually in the King's speech, they did uh, bring in this renters' reforms bill, but even scrapping no-fault evictions, which has been promised since 2018, even that is delayed now because they need to reform the courts in order to be able to have some kind of mechanism if a landlord does want to evict a tenant but can't use that Section 21 notice anymore. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a really difficult problem to solve um, because there has been, like I said, this enormous movement of wealth as a result of policies that weren't directly housing policies necessarily, you know, particularly monetary policy, um, but also more closely related policies like help to buy, where they have just, you know, they've moved an enormous amount of money around. And then it, it, it would it would take a, a great deal of effort to, to, to turn back the clock on that. Um, and um, you do... Um, a lot. I think most people agree that you need a lot more house building, but you need house building of a particular kind. Mm -hmm. So just having a target to build a certain number of houses isn't necessarily going to help. I mean, there are a quarter of a million empty houses in the UK. 
Um, it's about where people want to live, um, you know, where people can get to work from. Um, it's also about, um, you know, just I, I think one of the main things to do is to be honest with people about the effect uh, that we've been talking about of rising property prices and how they're they're not actually free money. They are, you know, a socially, culturally and economically corrosive. Mm. And um, to to set that out and then to say, so we are going to do things that, you know, allow this market to, I mean, I can't really see any government saying we're going to allow a particular market to stagnate, <laughs> but we are going to manage this market more closely mm. so that as house builders, you know, get back into building again, as people are buying properties, um, it's not subject to the same galloping inflation that it's had for, you know, over 15 years um, since the crash. And then before that, in the 80s and 90s, there were other periods of, of very high inflation in housing um, that all resulted from, you know, good intentions, just having these unattended side effects. And then separately, yeah, you just, you just need a much higher standard of rental protection. Um, so, yeah, I, and you need you need new landlords. That might be private companies. Um, there are some arguments for, for why that, that they might be good at that rather than, you know, uh, individuals renting houses to one another. Companies can be, be more accountable. But, uh, you know, what's worked in the past is obviously um, social landlords is, is councils really having the, the money to do that. But, um, yeah, I mean, you could almost look at the, um, the enormous movement of wealth as, uh, you know, from the Thatcher era to now as being a movement of wealth from, from local councils, from, yeah. you know, publicly held assets and housing into the private sector. And that's, yeah, once, once you privatise something, it's very difficult to to get it back. Yeah, and unfortunately with councils in the state that they're in, they're, they're often not great landlords even when they are still running housing, as we've seen from the state of social housing in some parts of the country as well. Well, thanks so much, both of you. Your pieces on this have been brilliant and hopefully there'll be plenty more. Um, thanks, Ellen, for joining us. I think, is this your debut on the New Statesman podcast? I think it is, yeah. Wow. About wow. time. Brilliant. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. You can read all the reporting mentioned in this episode via the links in the show notes. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Will Dunn and Ellen Pearson-Hagger. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for New Statesman. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.